The Old Testament comes from Isaiah 7. Um, it's on page 686 in your pew Bibles. Um, Isaiah 7, the lectionary goes from verse 10 through verse 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahab said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the New Testament reading is on page 966 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> 966. It's taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The heading is, Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But afraid he had considered, he had considered this, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. 
Good morning, church. Can you all hear me okay? Check, check. If you want to know who the diehard World Cup soccer fans in our church are, you can look at who's not here today. It's an interesting straw poll, but... Those of you who are here, way to go. You, uh, you're missing the game, but you know what? There'll be another one in four years, so... All right. I think uh, I think God probably delights in soccer as much as anyone. Uh, please join me in prayer um, before we deep uh, dive deeper into Isaiah chapter seven. Let's pray. We pray. Come. Lord Jesus, and Lord, uh, we cry out to you to come, knowing that you uh, are a God whose very heart is to come to us, a God who is always moving toward us. You are the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, who is coming even now, and who will one day come again. Lord, uh, as we sit under your word together today, we cry out for hope, confessing, Lord, that we need it. Uh, we need we need the faith to trust in your promises, to trust in you, to live into the promise here and now until you come again. So speak, Lord, and help us to listen. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, God with us. God's people prayed. Amen. So uh, as a kid, one of my favorite TV shows uh, was The Simpsons. And, you know, technically I wasn't allowed to watch it. <laughs> uh, but somehow I, I think I never missed an episode. And there were the reruns every day after school. So even if, you know, my mom forced us on Sunday nights to watch Touched by an Angel instead of The Simpsons. Uh, I still found a way to watch The Simpsons, and I loved it because it's, it's just such a funny show. And, you know, Oscar just turned, our son turned nine uh, on Thursday, and uh, maybe this is a bad parenting judgment. I don't know. You, you can judge me if you want, but uh, I figured he's old enough to watch The Simpsons now. So he and I have been watching The Simpsons, and, uh, and he loves it, and I still love it. It's still hilarious to me. And one of the things... I appreciate about it now that I didn't as a kid is how nearly every episode is a parody of some movie or some genre. Uh, and there's a whole nother layer to my experience of The Simpsons now as an adult who can watch these episodes that I loved as a kid and also see this whole nother dimension to them because it's, it's like, oh, this is... Citizen Kane, this is the Godfather, this is, 
you know, all these, these things that uh, just bring a whole different depth to what's going on in each episode of The Simpsons. Um, and this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. You just heard our two texts. We've got Matthew 1, and we also have Isaiah 7. And I think it's similar to The Simpsons in that, you know, most of us know Matthew 1 pretty well, right? We hear it this time of year throughout Advent, throughout Christmas, that it's the story of the angel coming to Joseph, uh, Joseph's dream, and the story, the Christmas stories of the angel coming to Mary. And Matthew tells us uh, that this is to fulfill this prophecy that the virgin will give birth to a son. His name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. But I wonder how many of us really know the context of that original prophetic oracle. How many of us really know what was going on in Isaiah chapter 7? Because the truth is, I didn't even know the story of Isaiah chapter 7 until uh, getting the chance to study it this week. So in this sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to do a deep dive into the story of King Ahaz. I want to take us back to the 8th century BC. We'll spend most of the time uh, of this sermon just telling that story. My hope is that it will give us a whole different depth of appreciation to what it would have meant for Matthew and Matthew's audience, uh, his Jewish audience, to hear that this Jesus, this Christ child, is the fulfillment of this 700-something-year-old prophecy. So if you will travel back with me to, uh, scholars think, somewhere between 736 B.C. and 734 B.C., Uh, what is known in uh, ancient Near Eastern history as the Syrian Epaphronite conflict. Um, So where is this in Israel's history? As you know, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world, says it is good, and by chapter 11, things have spiraled downwards. Humans uh, have rebelled from right relationship with God sin and brokenness and death, doubt, idolatry has entered the story. And by chapter 12, God makes, uh, God raises up a people through this, this couple, Abram and Sarai, and begins the great rescue project. God begins the work of pursuing not just one people group, but through them, all people and in fact, all creation. We see since the very beginning of the story and since already in the seeds of the fall, the story of a God who comes towards us, who moves towards us in love and in care and in mercy. And God, fast forward, raises up a people, Israel, to be blessed, to be a blessing to the nations, And sometimes they get it right, they live by faith, but so often they struggle to maintain faith, they fall into fear, and they choose the path of doing things their own way. And by the 8th century, by the time we've gone through now the golden era of King David, if you remember 2 Samuel 7 and the great prophecy where God makes another covenant 
not just to this people, but to David and to the house of David, that he will be with them forever in his presence and care. God binds God's self to this family, this nation. And several kings since David have, have struggled to lead out of that place of faith. And by the, by the time we get to King Ahaz in the 8th century, things are looking pretty bleak. Ahaz, uh, again, in this long line of kings, is sort of the next batter up in the line of, of kings. It's the era of the split kingdom where the north and the south uh, have split. And God's people are now housed in Judah, the southern kingdom. The temple still stands in Jerusalem. And the house of David uh, sits in the throne with King Ahaz. But King Ahaz is struggling to keep the faith. He, uh, he's sustained a number of military losses on the fringes of his kingdom. These two nations that have been advancing, the Ephraimites and the Syrians. And he's just gotten intel when chapter 7 begins that these two nations and their, their kings, Rama and Pika, have made an alliance with each other and that they have plotted to bring this dual assault on Jerusalem to siege and sack the city to destroy and bring an end to the house of David and to set up a puppet ruler in King Ahaz's place. And King Ahaz is petrified. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says, His heart and the hearts of his people were shaken. And they shook like a tree before the wind. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt so under attack, so threatened, so worried for your own security that you can feel it in your heart and in your body shaking like trees before the wind? Ahaz is terrified, and you can imagine out of his fear, he's wondering, is this the end? Is this the end of the story? Is this the end of this whole tradition of the house of David, of Yahweh, and these covenant promises? Did all that amount to this moment? Where all of it will amount to nothing? And it's into that context that God comes to King Ahaz. He comes to him, he moves towards him through the person of the prophet Isaiah. And so, uh, again, our, our passage, the lectionary text begins at verse 10, but I'm, I'm taking us back to the beginning of chapter 7. What happens in verse 2 is God, Yahweh, sends Isaiah to go bring a word of comfort to King Ahaz. He tells him to go to him uh, down by the aqueducts where uh, scholars believe Ahaz is probably with his advisors looking at the city water supply, the water supply in Jerusalem, probably trying to, to make an estimate of how many days water supply they have on hand once the siege against Jerusalem by their enemies begins. They're preparing for battle. 
They're preparing uh, for defeat. And God sends Isaiah to go and meet him at this meeting at the aqueduct and to say to him these words, keep calm, do not be afraid. Do not fear for these, these two kings that you're so afraid of right now. In reality, they're nothing more than just smoldering sticks, the ends of smoldering sticks left over from a bonfire. And through Isaiah, he says to King Ahaz, this plot against you, it will not come to be. And so you would think, right, Ahaz could just kind of, whew, what a relief. God has spoken through the great prophet of Isaiah. God has come and given us this prophetic oracle, this word of comfort that we don't need to be afraid but unfortunately, and if you know the story, and if you know the history of Israel, Ahaz is not able to, to receive the truth of his situation. He's not able to receive God's word through the prophet Isaiah. And there's one last line to that initial prophecy where he, he says, this, all this worry, this will come to nothing. These two kings, they, their downfall is about to come soon, actually. You need not be afraid. Keep calm. But then he also adds, stand firm in your faith in Yahweh, for it's your only hope of standing firm at all. But King Ahaz is not able to receive this word of comfort, because when he looks at his situation, things look bleak, and all he's able to allow himself to believe is that hope is gone. Now, King Ahaz did have one other option on the table, which is this extreme uh, foolish, we know from, from history's vantage point, uh, option. He had the option to, uh, to defend himself in Israel against these two smaller nations to the north who are planning this, this joint attack. He could always run to the great evil empire of Assyria, their sworn enemies, and bow to the monarch of Assyria and acknowledge the gods of the Assyrians and trade in security in trust in Yahweh for security and trust in a great global superpower. And this is a really bad idea for, for lots of reasons, but, but you can imagine that at, at, in this moment when his faith, his trust in Yahweh, his ability to hear the promise, to hear God's word is failing him. It feels like his, his only option left on the table. And this is actually where our passage, verse 10, that, was, that Chris read for us, begins. It's at this point where, where Isaiah 
seems to know that Ahaz has already in his heart made up his mind that he's going to make this uh, alliance with the Assyrians. And uh, verse 10 begins by saying it's, it's the Lord, it's Yahweh who now goes to, uh, to King Ahaz. Still, it seems through the prophet Isaiah, but it gives us a little picture of Isaiah's self-understanding that it's, that it's both him and yet Yahweh speaking through him. And God and Isaiah appeal one last time to King Ahaz. Isaiah says to him, ask for a sign, any sign, be it the highest of heights or the lowest of lows, just ask for a sign. Again, the the image I have is of, of Yahweh moving towards Ahaz. It's in a sense asking Ahaz to meet him halfway. Like, I see your doubt. I see you're struggling to have faith. What do you need to believe? Ask for it. And yet Ahaz, in what sounds like a pious response, simply says, no, I will not put God to the test. It's, it sounds pious, right? And it shows a little bit, remember, this is a, a king, he's a politician. It shows a little bit of his, his savviness and that anyone who maybe would have been in the room Maybe he presents himself as looking like he's still, as Israel's king, this, this leader of faith and trust in Yahweh. When, real, when in reality, what's happening is he, he's rejecting God's invitation to meet him halfway. He's refusing even to ask for a sign. And yeah, he, he seems to be quoting, there are some places in the Bible where it says, don't put God to the test. But also there's this great, there's this great uh, theme throughout the scriptures where God often does give signs, right? So much of Jesus' own ministry, and this is so present in John's gospel, is, is through these miracles, through these signs, and all throughout the Old Testament. God at times welcomes people who are struggling to have faith, who are Praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God welcomes the invitation to prove himself. And here, again, God is coming to Ahaz. He's leaning in, saying, just ask for a sign. What do you need to believe? And Ahaz refuses to even ask. It's so tempting at at this point in the story to just be frustrated with King Ahaz and just say, what a fool. If I was in his shoes, I would have trusted the prophetic oracle. I would have believed Isaiah's word that this attack was not going to come to fruition. I would have believed. But, But then I think about how, how many times in my own life, How many for each of us, even as people of faith, in the hundreds of small decisions we make each day, how often do we choose to react to our circumstances out of fear rather than proceed out of trust, out of the deep knowledge 
of God's constant presence and care in our lives. How often do we make really foolish decisions reacting to the the threat of our immediate circumstances and lack the distance to be able to step back and remember all of the ways that God has been faithful to us before. But it, it is normal to be frustrated with Ahaz in this point in the story. And in fact, Isaiah is very frustrated and God even is frustrated with Ahaz. Ahaz, in denying to even ask for a sign, has clearly already made up his mind that he's going to make this allegiance with with the Assyrians, with the great evil empire. He's going to sell the soul of Israel and forsake Yahweh. And Isaiah pushes back to his false piety, his, no, I won't put God to the test. And Isaiah instead says, is it not enough for you to frustrate humans, that you must also frustrate God. He calls him on it. He calls out the king like a prophet should. And in front of all the people, he says, you refuse to ask for a sign, yet God will give you a sign anyway. And here's what the sign shall be. A young maiden will give birth to a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. It adds a whole nother layer, doesn't it, to to the depth, the beauty, the the history of that well-known Christmas oracle. Because you see, when Matthew then says, when he introduces this genealogy and he starts to tell the story of this young virgin Mary and this, her fiancé Joseph, this couple in Galilee, when he tells the story of what's at work, how Yahweh is on the move again after hundreds of years that have felt silent, by the time he quotes this oracle from Isaiah seven fourteen. It's not just a hero who's showing up to save the day. It's Yahweh. Right? It's not like, you know, in some of the Marvel movies or some of these superhero movies, they begin with this crisis and who's going to save the day? And then a hero shows up. And who is this hero? This hero of the story is not a new character. It's the same God who out of love made us, and through the fall and all of history since, has been moving towards us. It's the God who has always been coming to us, who now comes to us, not just with another sign, but with 
his very self. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the God, not just of the incarnation, but the God who has come to us through Christ's birth and his life and teaching and through his death and through his resurrection and through his ascension. In Jesus Christ, God leans in all the way. God comes to us far enough to bridge the gap between all our doubt and our fear and our sin and rebellion and to make a way to be with us again. God has always been coming. God came to us in Jesus Christ. God is coming to us now, even here in our midst. And God will one day come again. And for those of you who, uh, I know for many of you, life, life is hard and has been hard. I think for all of us, life, life is hard. Uh, I think my friend Charlie likes to say, life is not for the faint of heart. And some of you are going through some particularly hard things right now, and you look at your circumstances, and it's hard, it's hard to see the presence and love and faithfulness of God in your present circumstances. And, and I just want to say to you, this, this, this verse from Proverbs has, has just kept coming to me throughout this week. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your path straight. And if you're struggling to believe in the promise, if you're struggling to believe in our covenant God and his constant faithfulness, if you're struggling to sense God's presence and care in your life and whatever you're going through right now, go ahead and ask God for a sign. Ask God to meet you halfway and then sit and wait for God to show up. And keep waiting and keep looking to the person of Jesus. Let us pray. God, in this, uh, in this season of Advent, in the season of waiting, where we, we feel the not-yetness of this tension between the already and the not-yet. God, give us faith. Give us hope. 
Give us love that we may be a people in a world so afraid and insecure, a people who live out our days resting in the knowledge of your constant care and mercy, whatever else may befall us. May we as Sherman Street Church know your love so deeply that our very lives might be a witness beyond ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. Today, tomorrow, until that great day when you come again and truly make all things new. When, as Jen said last week, from the Lord of the Rings, when every sad thing will come untrue. Give us that trust, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.